The following sermon is presented by Pastor Derek Ward of Harvest Bible Chapel, Barbados. For more information about Harvest, visit our website at www.harvestbarbados.org. So, I'm excited to teach you this morning from God's Word as the Holy Spirit has been teaching my heart in preparation. I'm particularly excited about this sermon. I'm excited about every sermon. But uh, I'm particularly excited. I was preparing a sermon. I was getting out of my chair all the time. I was jumping and I was rejoicing. Like I called my wife and I had to read every paragraph. As soon as I finished a paragraph, I called her and I read the paragraph. And I was, I was so excited about this particular sermon. So I, I, I trust that I can contain myself as I deliver God's word to you. So as we, as we open our Bibles to Esther, still in the book of Esther, Esther chapter 4, we are in a series called God Behind the Scenes. I want to remind you that God is never mentioned, not once, he's never mentioned by name in the book of Esther. But his fingerprint can be detected in this narrative uh, as we've seen so far in the previous sermons. If there's brokenness in your life, you can trust the God who rebuilds broken kingdoms. He can fix broken relationships, broken finances, broken bodies and minds, uh, and any other thing that we can present to him that is broken in our lives. Furthermore, there are times when we are filled with doubt. We're filled with doubt as it pertains to doing the work that God has set out before us because we see the many flaws, the flaws in our own characters, the flaws in our preparation for ministry, the flaws that, that the enemy reveals to us every day we get out of our beds. He reveals that we are flawed in many ways. But we are thankful that God uses imperfect people when you read the text of the Bible, you recognize that God always used people who had flaws. And those flaws didn't stop the mighty God from working mightily through those flawed people. So we are in good company with Moses, who had a speech impediment. With David, who was a murderer and adulterer. With, with, with Jonah, who was a, a, a fugitive from God. We, we are in good company. Peter, who was so quick to cast you out and cut off ears. And, and, and all these other men, we are in good company because God uses imperfect people. Now, if you are here today, you consider yourself to be a perfect man. I want to say, show us your, your perfectness. Because all of us are imperfect beings. But he wants to use us. Don't let your flaws and your imperfections stop God from using you. Likewise, we, when we decide to become instruments in the master's hands, we become targets for the enemy of our souls who plots and plans for our demise through the craftiness of his tactics. And we should all know his tactics. You only have three tactics. The loss of the eye, the loss of the flesh, and the pride of life. Don't care how he, he puts clothes on it, how he changes it up. It all by itself is one of these three things. It's either he's attacking you through the loss of your flesh, through the lust of your eye or through the pride of life. Those are his tactics. They don't change. Yet when he attacks us and he plots against us, we stand on the firm knowledge that God knows the enemy's plans. 
The enemy's plans is for us to bow and conform to worldly customs. But as we have heard last week, we can stand with great confidence and trust because we serve the omniscient God who is not only all-knowing, but he is all-powerful and he is all-present. One writer says he's a, he's a very present help in the time of trouble. So if you have a time of trouble right now, you don't have to go dialing 911. You don't have to go searching anywhere else. You know that he is a very present help in the midst of your trouble. This is the God who is always working behind the scenes. As we explore the text today in Esther chapter 4 and down into chapter 5, seems like a big chunk, but it'll be going smoothly. As we explore the text today, it is my prayer that you would recognize that God positions people for purpose. God positions people for purpose. And I'm trusting that you will see that through the examples of Esther and Mordecai in this particular story. Question for you. Have you ever stopped and pondered on your reason for being? Your reason for being a part of this Christian community, your reason for being a part of your particular family, your reason for being in a particular place of employment? Sometimes we take these things for granted. But I'm here to say that if your reason doesn't take into consideration God's purpose for your existence, then you have much to learn from these pages today. Chapter 4 of Esther switches the focus back to Mordecai and Esther following a well-thought-out plan to destroy the Jews living in the 127 provinces of the Persian Empire sometime during the 5th century before Christ. The newly appointed second-in-command, Vizier, as he is called, uh, Haman, was responsible for the deadly plot against the Jews. Be reminded that Haman's lineage traces back to Agag, the Amalekite, Amalekite king. I'm, I'm promising not to miscall the words this week. You know, I, I'm getting it right this week. He's the Amalekite king. And the Amalekite king was destroyed by the Israelites during the reign of King Saul, who was the king of Israel. Though Saul botched the mission, Saul was told to go and destroy, and he, he didn't destroy everything. He botched the mission. Haman is coming up against Mordecai, whose lineage traces back to Kish, the father of King Saul, all descendants of Benjamin, who was the son or the last child of Jacob, a.k.a. Israel. We saw Haman in chapter 3, just building up for where we're going today, we saw Haman in chapter 3 making racial statements in relation to the Jews. He said that there's a certain set of people among us who are scattered and, and all these things. He even not call their names. Uh, he started making racial statements. We also saw that Haman offered a bribe to the king. He says, listen, I will pay 10,000 uh, talents. He's, he's, he's bribing the king now. We saw in chapter 3, that Haman plotted to commit genocide. He wanted to take out the entire race, all of the Jews in the Persian Empire, not just in Susa, where they were living, but all across the 127 provinces. 
As we've heard last week, this was probably a revenge for what happened to his forefathers. When Saul and uh, the Israelites took out all of the Amalekites. He being a descendant is probably seeking revenge. So this revengeful plan was shared with the king who sanctioned and sealed it with his signet ring, thus throwing the city of Susa into a state of confusion. All these years, we've been living in peace, and all of a sudden, we want to kill the Jews. Jews haven't done us anything. But here is this man, Haman, who's trying to get rid of the Jews. So my friends, let's pick it up at this point and allow the scriptures to speak to our hearts as we experience this God behind the scenes. Esther chapter 4, read with me, starting at verse 1, the Bible says, When Mordecai, to learn of all that had been done, and this is the plot that was going on, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Let's stick a pen there for now as we have a lot of text to get through. This chapter opens with Mordecai getting wind of the deadly plot against God's people and so grave was the situation it resulted in a righteous indignation that drove him to a place of brokenness. Here are the takeaways that I want to present to you as we come to grips with the fact that God positions people for purpose. When you are faced with great opposition and even oppression, as the Jews were in this narrative, it is is critical that you do one thing first. You assume the position of brokenness. Assume the position of brokenness. Mordecai's refusal to bow before Haman was the stimulus for the plot against an entire race of people. The punishment is grossly out of proportion to the crime and suggests that some level of hostility towards the Jews was already present. As we've seen in chapter 3, Haman just came out of nowhere. There's no account of what he was doing before, where he came from. He just popped out of nowhere, become the second in command, and immediately found reason because one man wouldn't bow. Can you imagine that all you did was to take a straw wrapper and throw it through the window? Okay, let's move on. I guess you all have been following what's happening in the news. But imagine that that's what the offense was, that you threw the wrapper for a straw through the vehicle window, and the people of this country decides, well, we will not just make you pay $500, but we're going to kill you and your mother and your father and your brothers and your sisters. The, The punishment was not commensurate with the crime. 
and they wanted this was happening. So, so one man refused to bow and they want to kill all. Have to be some hatred going on there. However, Mordecai's position at the king's gate meant that he was always in the know. He was in a place where he heard things, you know. It's like you go to the barber shop or the hairdressing salon, you hear things. Uh, that's where things are discussed. In this day, it was at the gate. It was at the gate that things happened. It was where the court was held. It was happened happen at the gate. So if there was a rumor, you would hear it at the gate. And he was positioned there. Positioned for purpose. It didn't take long for him to become aware of the decree. That was made against the Jewish people. And his reaction, as we've seen in these three verses, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes. His reaction reflects a broken man. The tearing of garments and the adorning oneself in sackcloth and ashes are both outward expressions of a broken spirit. Tearing of one's clothes was an expression of grief. And anger and was recorded throughout the Old Testament as seen with Jacob. He's grieving over the loss of his son Joseph. Remember that servant Joseph was, was, was sold by his brothers and they came back and they told Jacob, uh, isn't this Joseph's coat full of blood? They made the father believe that he was torn apart by wild animals uh, and the father tore his clothes and grieved for his beloved son. 2 Samuel chapter 1, that is. Sorry, that's Genesis chapter 37. We also see the, the, the grieving of David. He's tearing up his clothes when he got wind that King Saul was killed. A man who was tormenting him, a man who was running him all over the plains. And yet when King Saul was killed, David tore his clothes and he grieved in 2 Samuel chapter 1. It was a sign that things were not good for the one expressing himself this way. As I said earlier, it represented an internal condition of grief or anger. The focus should never be on the clothes, but on the internal brokenness. Let's take a pen there. For too long, my friends, too many people were either misguided, misinformed, or simply ignorant about the fact of tearing of garments. I can't with certainty tell you how many times I've heard people, including believers, misquoted the scripture found in Joel chapter 2 and verse 13. And they will say, render your heart and not your garment. They will normally use this statement to justify the way how they dress even to come to church. Render, the Bible says, render your heart and not your garment. My friends, the text never tells us to render your heart. The text, especially in King James Version, says rend, R-E-N-D, rend your hearts and not your garments. It is proposing that the brokenness that we experience should be more internal as opposed to the outward show of tearing your clothes. When people tore their clothes, they show that they were grieving or they were angry. The Bible is telling us in Joel to tear your heart where no man can see but become a broken man before God because of two things that I will quote for you. The Bible tells us that God will never turn away a broken or contrite heart.
We've been learning here at Harvest that we don't just take scripture, one verse of scripture, and run with it. We, what would we do? We, we read back a few verses or we read forward a few verses and we get some context around that one verse. So if you continue to read Joel chapter 2 and verse 13, not 14, not 15, not 16, but the same verse 13, the Bible says, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. So what am I saying here? When you tear your heart, God relents. God sees a broken heart. God sees a, a, a broken spirit. God sees us when we win ourselves. Uh, we can get so accustomed to tearing our clothes uh, that we just tear it for tearing it. Sit. It's just an outward sign, but there's no inward response. When you are being oppressed and opposed, when you are being suppressed by the enemy, seeking to possess it is time to render your heart, tear your heart, not just your garment. My friends, you might want to write this down. To rend your heart is to experience genuine repentance or grief. When you rend your heart is to experience genuine repentance or grief. Is not simply to present your heart to someone. I can render my heart to my wife. I can render my heart to other people. But don't use that scripture out of context. Sorry, don't misquote that scripture and make it say something that it doesn't say. The Bible simply says, tear your heart and resume a position of brokenness. Not only did Mordecai tear his clothes, the Bible says he adorned himself in sackcloth and ashes. Sackcloth, my friend. You see it on the screen right now. This guy is dressed in sackcloth. Right. Sackcloth, usually made of black goats here, was the apparel of mourners and was a particularly uncomfortable garment. There's some people in my family, um, I won't call their names, but they're not male. Um, that they can't allow the tag for the shirt to stay in the shirt because the tag itches them. So what they have to do is to put on the shirt and then come and say, can you cut the tag out? They will never be able to wear sackcloth because the entire garment itches your skin. It was rough. It was uncomfortable. So when a man was broken, he was not just broken by tearing his clothes, but he was broken enough to put on something that was uncomfortable. Says, I am going to be in an uncomfortable state until I get justice. There are people who sit in prison and they feel as if they are being treated poorly. So they decide to refuse food. I will not eat. No, that's not fasting. That's a hunger strike. Don't, don't mix up me too. They look alike. So the sackcloth, as uncomfortable as it was, was simply a sign of what's happening on the inside. I am broken. Ashes, my friends, signify desolation and ruin. You don't get ashes from good stuff. You get ashes when everything is burnt. It, this, it, it signifies that something has been destroyed. Something has been ruined. 
So when a man would put on an uncomfortable garment and then put ashes all over his face, it says that that man was in a serious place of grief. In Old Testament times, people used these elements when there were times of national outcries. Something was happening at a national level. When they would use ashes and sackcloth, when it was time for great grief or in times of repentance, you're broken before God. They were also dressed this way when they were fasting. That's why the Bible tells us in the New Testament, don't let your fasting be put on the sackcloth and the ashes anymore. But you, you fast now in secret. Nobody needs to know that you are fasting. But in Old Testament times, everybody knew when you were fasting. I'm telling you, there's some Christians who wear sackcloth and ashes on their faces. They're going to let you know that, oh, I'm fasting. You can see the hunger on their face. No, you're supposed to be bright and happy and go on. You're fasting you, you're because it's your heart that is being broken and being torn, not your outward appearance. It says that he put on these things and he went out with a mighty cry. Now, all through the Old Testament, we see men put on ashes. We see Job put on ashes when he was suffering. We See Daniel in Daniel 9, putting on ashes and sackcloths. I particularly am, am drawn to the words of Joel in Joel chapter 1 and verse 13. And it was speaking to the ministers at that time. It says to the priests, it says, gird yourselves with sackcloths and lament. Cry, call up before the God that you serve. My friends, if anyone saw you in sackcloth and ashes, then you knew that something was seriously wrong. Let the adorning be in our hearts now, not outward. My friends, this, this man, Mordecai, he dressed up. Sorry, tore his clothes. He dressed up in an uncomfortable garment. The Bible says he goes out into the midst of the city. It's right here in the text. It says he went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. As in still in verse 1. This man wasn't sobbing and tears just rolling on his face, you know. You know, we cry like that sometimes, you know, you, you feel a little hurt and... Especially when you're wearing mascara, you know. Can't let it run, can't let it run. This man didn't care about mascara and rouge and all the other things. This man was bawling! Is it far rouge? Right. He was bawling! He was crying with a loud and bitter voice. Why was this man crying like this? Now we hear that you dress like this and you behave like this when you are in repentance or when you are grieving or when you are angry. Surely he wasn't repenting. There was no indication that Mordecai was repenting for his refusal to bow because that's the activity or the behavior that caused all this to be happening. He wasn't repenting because of that. He obviously was being guided by his knowledge of the scriptures. He would be versed in the Torah, the books of Moses. He knew that he would never bow before an Amalekite. What is clear is that Mordecai is feeling the gravity of the situation that he and the Jews were facing. Destruction, death, annihilation. That's what he was facing. 
We in the Western world, the Americas, the Caribbean, we in the Western world are so accustomed to keeping our grief private and sometimes to our own peril, unexpressed, that we may pass off Mordecai's demonstration and noisy lamentation as a mere melodramatic show. We will say, hey, you're being dramatic. Put on your big boy pants and get up off the ground. And we would try to do all these things. But this was a broken man who was a melodramatic. He was grieving and angry. Sometimes our culture puts us out of tune with the culture of the East. The biblical culture. For whom grief and repentance and anger was deadly serious. It's necessary for us to put ourselves in the shoes of Mordecai, who, having heard all that was orchestrated against the Jews, responds with expressions of intense grief, tore his clothes, adorned himself in sackcloth, and he bitter, he cried bitterly. How would you react if that was you? The whole family is going to be killed, not just you, but your whole family. How would you react? I am most certain, my friends, that at one time or the other, all of us have experienced some form of oppression or even oppression in our lives. The question is, what is your default response to such treatment? What is your default response? Do you take matters into your own hands? Do you say, I can fix this? I, I can fix all things? Do you decide to fix it? Do you get frustrated and assume a fretful or complaining disposition? Or are you quick to assume a position of brokenness before God? In this life, we must be wise to be able to determine which situations can be fixed and which situations need to be taken to the king. Let us approach the king. It's important for us to see one other thing before we move on to this text. It says that he went up in verse 2, he went up to the entrance of the gate. The entrance of the gate. He didn't go inside because he couldn't go inside dressed the way he was dressed. But he knew that at the entrance of the gate, he would be in position to be seen by the queen. He was positioned for purpose. Even in your hardships, God is going to put you in a position for his purpose. As I extrapolate from this text, I wish to tell us that now is the time to be broken. To cry and to mourn over the injustices of the enemy. But there's coming a time and a place where it won't be necessary. As John saw the new heaven and the new earth in Revelation chapter 21, he prophesied that there won't be any reason for us to be in sackcloth and ashes. He said that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. There's no reason for us when we all get to heaven to wear sackcloth and ashes. That's a time to wear the best that you will have and to rejoice. Put on your wedding garments and let's rejoice with the Lord. No time for sackcloth and ashes. So my friends, let's assume the position of brokenness as we face the various troubles that are presented to us in life. 
When Mordecai heard of the coming calamity for the Jews, he began to mourn and position himself outside the king's gate. Little did he or anybody else knew at the time that God was working behind the scenes when he positioned Mordecai for the purpose of getting the queen's attention. God always positions people for purpose. Here's the second thing you want to take away today. When you see trouble coming, when you see a brother or sister being targeted by the enemy, when you realize that a Christian community is under threat, you must engage in meaningful conversations. Engage in meaningful conversations. Picking up at verse 4 in this text, these next eight verses relate the conversation between Esther and her former guardian, Mordecai. So let's give you the flyover of these verses that I hope you will read for yourself because that's what we do, we read, right? These are the, the flyovers. In verse 4, Esther shows concern for Mordecai. She's told that Mordecai is outside. He's dressed in sackcloth and he's in ashes and she shows concern. The Bible says she sends out clothes for Mordecai. She says, change from those mourning clothes and, and, and you're, you're outside the king's gate. Put on some good clothes. The Bible says that Mordecai refuses. And this act of refusal causes Esther to become increasingly concerned to the point where she now inquires as to what and to why. So that takes us down to verse 5 now. And Mordecai shares, my friends, with great, with great detail the deadly plot against the Jews. He even gives her evidence. He sends to her a copy of the decree. Where, 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 where did he get that from? He was a resourceful guy. He knew how to get things. So he knew how to copy of this. Look, tell Esther that this is what's happened. Tell Esther that Haman even promised to pay for this thing. Here's the evidence. A decree. This is a conversation going back and forth between the queen and her former guardian. So he shares the deadly plot. Esther, this is what you need to do. You need to make representation for your people. That's something that you should stop on the line in your Bible. At no time before this did Mordecai ask Esther to reveal her identity. This is the first time. Let them know who you really are. There's a Jew, there's a, a, a Malachite trying to kill the Jews. You are a Jew. Let them know who you really are. Well, look at verse 4 and see what Esther, look at verse 11 and see what Esther does. In verse 11, it says, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter. She starts to make excuses. She's making excuses as to why she shouldn't go to the king. Can you imagine your cousin who raids you from a little girl is outside in sackcloth and ashes telling you that all of us are going to be destroyed and you're making excuses? Really, Esther? Excuses? Yeah, but you know, 
You can't just go into king, that's a death wish. The second thing that she utters is that, listen, it has been 30 days now since the king called me in. It's a month, a month gone. I have not seen the king. One commentator says that she was now losing favor with the king because the king had eyes for beauty. He was looking for another beautiful piece to put in his palace. So, so they have all sorts of theories behind this. But all we know is she said, it's a mere month that the king has not called me in. Excuses. What do you do when you are confronted? Do you, do you, do you put on stock clause or do you make excuses? Do you make excuses for why you can't do this or why you can't do that? When God has positioned you for purpose and you're making an excuse as to why you cannot fulfill the purpose? Mm. My friends, this was a meaningful yet difficult conversation to have. But it was happening. Mordecai was letting she know what happened. Similarly, when we are faced with hardship or injustice or when others are doing things that need to be addressed, we too must engage in meaningful and difficult conversations. When there's injustice against a set of people, for whatever reason, we must therefore engage in meaningful conversations. When there's abuse of any kind, whether at home, at school, at work, or even in the church, we must have those difficult conversations. Don't sit down and allow your leaders to abuse you without having a conversation. When there's tension between brothers and sisters and they don't seem to be an imminent resolution, we must engage in the difficult and meaning conversations. Mordecai was having a conversation even though it was through a third party. He was saying, go tell the queen. The queen says, go tell Mordecai. Go tell the queen. Go tell Mordecai. And you're going back and forth to tell Mordecai that's, that's not going to happen. I'm not going to the king because I want to live. So as we continue to plow through, we get to verse 12 of this text. We must recognize that when we engage in meaningful conversations, it should lead us to a point to understand this one thing. If you don't get nothing else in this sermon, then you get this one point. We must elevate purpose over position. Elevate purpose over position. Verse 12 through 14. You will read it because I'm just going to jump or hit the points. In these three verses, Mordecai starts to shake down the queen. Whoo! You making excuses? Shake her down. What the young people say, he started to shell down the queen. Shell down the queen. Woohoo! Shells her down, shakes her down with a view of bringing her to a place of recognizing her purpose. Pay close attention to the difficult line that Mordecai is taking with the queen. The queen just had to get vested and says, Listen, king, live forever. Stop mad at the gate. She could distance herself from him and have him killed. But he engages in a difficult conversation. He says to herself, poses the question, do you think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews? Oh, this man getting very deep all of a sudden. I gave him all the legitimate reasons why I can't go to the king. You really feel 
but you will escape because you in the palace. The man was hitting on her position. This was her position. She was the queen. She was in the palace. See, because you're in the king's palace. This broken man brings Queen Esther to understand palace don't stop you from being a judo. My friends, it's nice to have position and status, but clearly that will not stop the enemy from destroying you. It may delay the inevitable, but it will not stop the inevitable. Secondly, he speaks truth into her life. Don't just ask questions. Uh, you know, somebody ask questions to make people. <laughs> Don't just ask questions. He speaks truth now. So he has a question. He speaks truth. He informs her that her position of prominence is not for her own benefit. And that if she refuses to act in these times, this is what he says. Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. In other words, God will deliver this is a deep theological truth. It's born out in, in Psalm 94 and verse 14, which says, For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. It is echoed in Romans chapter 11 and verse 1. When Paul asks and answered a pertinent question, Has God rejected his people? By no means. King James says, God forbid, he will not reject his people. So if you think that your position is beyond God, God can move you and put somebody else in that position to do what he wants done, why he put you there in the first place. So you better know that you are there for a reason. If you don't do it, the reason is bigger than you. God, but he didn't say that, but be on side that God was working behind the scenes. He says, relief and deliverance will rise from another place. That crown you got on your head will mean nothing. So he asks a question, he makes a statement, and he comes back with a second question. Second question this time. Cautions her. That her position will not prevent her dis dis demise and that of her family. You know why? That's important. She was an orphan. Her father was dead. He says, you and your father's house. Her father was already dead. It's talking about her family, her people. So in verse 14, he asked her the heart revealing rhetorical question. Now he didn't want to answer with this. I didn't want to answer Esther. He just asked you a question. And this is the question. He says, who knows? Whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. One of the two famous statements of the book of Esther. Who knows? Have you come to the kingdom? We, we use that so many times out of context. We use that when people are doing what we think. He says, ah, you've come to the kingdom for such a time. No, Mordecai was like, who knows? Didn't you come to the kingdom for this purpose? I don't really know, but this looks like the right time for me in the kingdom. He's hidden at the core and driving her to, to elevate purpose over position. Those who like to write should write this down. I'm going to put it on the screen for you. Being in the kingdom 
was her position. But being the voice that brings deliverance was her purpose. God can execute his purpose regardless of where you think you are. In this case, it was in the kingdom. In your case, it may be your workplace or it may be your family. It may be something else. You know, sometimes you have a family who is so ungodly and then one person in that family becomes saved. Don't you think that this is the time or uh, you come to the kingdom for such a time as this? You're the only person in your family who got saved. Maybe God is trying to use you for purpose. Position you right there. Allow me to caution all of us today. God is sovereign and though he chooses to use us in whatever we are doing at this time, he can always raise up someone else to do what we are doing today. My friends, somebody else can be in this pulpit next week declaring God's word. Uh, if I don't fulfill the purpose, he can bring somebody else. And sometimes we look at other people and think, oh, you don't have what I have. You don't have my qualifications or my money. You don't have all of this. But God isn't interested in all the things that you have. When God deposits purpose within you, he's going to position you to execute that purpose. That's why we should elevate purpose over position. Never allow your position to distract you from your purpose. Stop beating your chest. Don't let your position distract you from your purpose. Because God has ultimate control over both your purpose and your position. So again, I ask, what is your reason for being? Why on earth are you here? What legacy will you leave? Want some right to pen these beautiful words and I wish to share them with you and I quote, if I carry the gospel to the lost near and far, I won't stand empty-handed at God's judgment bar. But if I dare not relax until I've done all he acts, don't let me leave behind an unfinished task. If I have wronged a brother, if I have wounded a friend, give me strength, precious Savior, to make my amends. And when I come to change my world and reach glory at last, don't let me leave behind an unfinished task. Oh, you have run the race. You have kept the faith. These words I long to hear my Savior say. And when my life on earth is past, there's just one thing I want to ask. Don't let me leave behind an unfinished task. When one elevates purpose over position, they won't leave behind an unfinished task. There's no time to pompously stand and beat our proverbial chest because of the position we hold or the accolades we have received or even the place where we sit because all of these will pass away. But the purpose that lies within us will create a lasting legacy for generations to come. And my friends, my prayer to us is that our great great-grandchildren will hear of the godly stands that we took in creating a legacy of righteousness for many generations after us to follow. That's my prayer. That when I'm long gone, the descendants of the Ward clan would hear of the righteous stand that I took and they too will benefit from my purpose God has deposited. Here's the fourth and final thing and we'll wrap this up quickly. Picking up about verse 15, chapter 4, we'll take you all down to verse 8 of chapter 5. We need to prepare 
and execute God's purpose. Not your own, not somebody else's own, God's purpose. As we finish chapter 4 and look at the beginning of chapter 5, we see two things, preparation and execution. Clearly something that Mordecai said resonated with Esther as the excuses went through the window and her heart begins to prepare for what could be a deadly mission. She asked Mordecai to do something, gather all the Jews found in Susa and join her and her servants in an absolute fast, eat nothing at all, don't even drink water for three days and three nights. Note this, my friends. This is the first time in this entire narrative that a spiritual discipline is being mentioned. Fasting. Obviously, Mordecai's disposition at the beginning of the chapter will leave us to believe that he was also fasting as he was wearing the garments associated with that practice. But in verse 16 is where the discipline is explicitly called for. According to the Anchor Yale Bible Dictionary, fasting is the deliberate Temporary abstinence from food or religious reasons. The Bible Dictionary of Languages puts it this way. It says, fasting is the condition of voluntarily abstaining from food with a dedication or petition to a deity. A hunger strike is not a fast. Forgetting to have breakfast in the morning and saying, well, you know, I just, I just hold up to lunchtime is not a fast. Somebody, uh, I didn't even eat today. I said, well, I, I can call that fast. That's not a fast. A fast is an intention. You know, we, we Christians know how to, how to make it look right. I eat for the whole day. I say, you know what? I, I, just call that a fast. No, it wasn't a fast. A fast is an intentional decision before the fact, not after. I know a goodly gentleman who would go into fasting and he would fast from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. But at 5, he's cooking a big pot of food. He's eating at 5.30. He's eating lots of food at 5.30. And then he's fast from 6. And then at 6 in the evening, he's eating the next half pot of that food. Well, he chose that. Throughout the Bible, there are many examples of persons engaging the act of fast in times of repentance or before they perform some great task. In this text, we see Esther calling for a national fast because of the gravity of the situation. There are times when the fast is within households, and many times over, the fast is an individual choice to respond to a situation. Fasting, my friends, always, always had and should have a specific purpose and wasn't to be done willy-nilly. What was communicated in the words of Esther is the purpose of the fast. Fast on my behalf. It was also communicated the length of the fast, three days and three nights. It was also communicated of the urgency of the fast, that I may live when I'm going to see the king. She was asking for a time of preparation. She knew how grave it was to go before the king, so I'm not just going to the king just on my own, I'm going to fast. What she further communicated is that she will not make a move until the preparation is done. She says, after all of that, then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. When we fast and prepare ourselves, we are willing to take death. Esther is prepared to execute God's purpose on her life in this season, even at the expense of her own life. 
If we learn anything from Esther, it should be this. Prepare yourself. As we look at chapter 5, chapter 5 opens. On the third day, it says on the third day, she put on her robes and she stood in the outer court. Esther is executing the mission as advised by Mordecai. She said, go to the king. Esther gets appropriately dressed, appropriately dressed, and stands in a position to be seen. She was positioned for purpose. Her stand in the court reflects wisdom, which comes only from God, as to do anything else would have resulted in a failed mission. She waits until she is beckoned by the king and the golden scepter in verse 2. Obviously, the king knows that something is troubling her and was pro it was probably depicted on her face. He questions her and this question opens the door for Esther to craftily execute God's purpose. Watch what Esther is doing here. She invites the king and his second in command to a banquet which she had already prepared. Esther's preparation was not only spiritual, it was also physical. Before she went to see the king, she had the banquet prepared for the king. So she went in and she said, come to a banquet, you and Haman. I'm saying, this to say, I'm saying that to say this, if we are able to execute God's purpose, then our preparation can't only be spiritual. It must be spiritual, but it can't only be spiritual. If you're going to teach God's word or any other subject, you, know, you just don't pray about it and then stand up and speak. You study and you prepare first. If you're going to lead this congregation in a place of worship, worship team, you don't just pray and fast, you practice and rehearse. If you're going to facilitate or lead a small group, you prepare your public curriculum beforehand and you are prayed up. Yes, it's spiritual side, but you prepare so you can answer questions. If you're going to go on a mission to win the loss uh, out in, in St. Lucie or St. Lucia, wherever you're going on a mission, you don't just prepare spiritually by fasting and praying and, pray and all these things, but you have to count the cost and raise some money. I'm told of a missionary who went on a mission trip, oh, so burdened for a mission trip, and then he suffered out on a mission trip because he had no money. And then he became bitter because he felt the church that he was leaving should be sending him money. Now, yes, the church should help. I've also heard of the story of another church where a man met his pastor and said, Pastor, I feel the burden of God to go on missions and to do missions. The pastor said, do you have money? He said, no, but God will take care of me. The pastor said, no, God ain't going to take care of you. You raise your money first. And out of that, eight men in that church became millionaires by raising money to go on missions. The story is right there. The pastor challenged him. Prepare before you go. If you're going to go, you've got to prepare. If you're going to minister to the poor and the marginalized, you've got to prepare. Don't just pray and say, Lord, we're going to feed the poor. We're going to feed them with prepare by getting some food. Regardless of your mission, you need to adequately prepare. This is what Esther did. She prepared physically. She fed the king and him and she even provided wine. She knew they liked wine. Yet, in all of this, the king kept inquiring as to what was wrong. Esther was not rushing the mission. She was pursuing success. God's work isn't to be rushed and done in a mediocre way. While everything else in our lives takes precedence, we, we put so much energy into everything else except God's work. His work requires adequate preparation and meticulous execution. Esther's execution starts in chapter 5, but continues in chapter 6, as we will hear two weeks from now. 
even though she had an overwhelming burden to share with the king, she holds it back. As we bring the study to a close, we will notice that Esther uses the strategy of suspense. Esther, what is wrong? What do you want? Ask anything up to the half of the kingdom, I will give it to you. She contains herself and refuses to share her heart. What she does instead, she says, King, let's have another banquet tomorrow. Let's meet tomorrow again for more food and more wine. And I will share the troubles of my heart. I have two questions for you as we get ready to close. What is the mission that God has commissioned you for? In other words, what is your purpose on earth? If you don't know it, you need to find out what your purpose is. The second question is this, how are you preparing yourself to execute God's purpose? There's some people who want to be preachers, but they're not studying. They feel like they just come up here and they're going to say whatever they want to say. Gone are those days. We need to prepare what we're going to say to God's people. We need to warm up our voices before we sing. We need to do so many things. Loved ones, we must prepare for and execute God's purpose on earth. As I conclude, I want to challenge us to be cognizant that God positions people for purpose. Here's a question you should seek to answer. Where has God positioned me so that he can execute his purpose? Where has God positioned me so that he can execute his purpose. It's time for a paradigm shift in our thinking that tells us that we are where we are because we've worked hard and made smart choices. I'm sure that I wasn't the brightest bulb in my time of studying. There are people in my class much brighter than I. Me. God positioned me here for a purpose. It's time for a paradigm shift that has led us to think that there's a separation between our secular work and our ministry. God doesn't separate us. God doesn't give me a separate job and then a ministry. God gives me a purpose and I will execute that purpose whether I'm in church or I'm at work or I'm at home or play. So change your mindset that there's secular and there's divine. There's just purpose, my friends. Write this down as we are being reflective. God has positioned you where you are. Whether that's in your family, at work, in this church, in your social groups, God has positioned where you are so that he can use you to execute his divine purpose. Because God has positioned us for purpose, we should one, humble ourselves before him. We should assume a position of brokenness. It's time to mourn over the world because of sin as we see the increase in darkness and the blatant disregard for God's word. Two, we must engage in meaningful conversations as it pertains to what's happening around us. Speak to the injustices of wrong. Speak to the sinfulness that is rampant. Speak out against the plans of the enemy to destroy, kill, and annihilate the people of God. Speak to the lack of commandment in the Christian commitment, sorry, in a Christian community as it pertains to our growth and impact. 
We must also elevate purpose over position. As the body has many members, each member serving a different purpose, they all function as one body. And each member understanding its purpose is not more important than other people's purpose. It may be different, but not more important. Friends, if you're going to elevate purpose over position, we must resist the need to push our personal agendas. When we serve in ministry teams, not all of us will be visible as seen. Worship teams and preachers are very visible. You see them all the time. But some of us work at a soundboard behind the scenes. People don't even see the sound technicians sometimes or the, the guys operating the cameras and the computers upstairs or, or the people out there serving children or those serving at the doors. Or what about those who come and sweep and mop and they're executing purpose? Not all that we do will be seen publicly and, and, and celebrated, but all is important. My friends, effective execution is fueled by diligent preparation. So we must prepare and execute God's purpose. We've been hearing so much about preparation over the past months. It's clear to my mind that we need to spend more time getting ourselves equipped. The Christian life is a constant journey of preparation and execution. Preparation and execution. My friends, in the army I was taught the six P's. Well, we were taught the seven P's, but one, the P's are not appropriate for church. So let me give you the six. The six P's are proper, prior, preparation, prevents poor production. If you're going to perform, you've got to prepare prior. Do proper preparation. God is working behind the scenes and he's positioning people for purpose. Would you let him use you in the place where he has positioned you? It's my prayer and hope that you'll respond today and say to him, I will be what you've called me to be. I'll say yes. Lord, thank you. Thanks for listening to this message by Derek Ward, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Chapel, Barbados, located on Goodland Road, St. Michael. Check us out online at www.harvestbarbados.org or on any of our social media platforms at Harvest Barbados. If you're looking for a church family to call home, we invite you to join us this and every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. for our high-impact service where we lift high the name of Jesus in worship and proclaim the authority of God's Word without apology. Until next time, we just want you to know that you are loved.